Welcome to the Collective Gamers Podcast. This is episode 21. It's Saturday, November 5th. I'm Tony. And I'm Dennis. And we're going to be talking about uh, pinball video games and a little bit of tabletop uh, this week. I have been doing nothing that I was supposed to do this last week. I've literally done nothing but burn through the last two books of The Wheel of Time. The Wheel. Yeah, yeah. The Wheel Weaves is The Wheel Wills. And it's... As as is, I'm I'm not I'm not quite done. I'm I'm about two thirds of the way through the final book. So even after all of this, you still aren't done with it. Yeah, yeah. No, oh it's, my. I mean, it's it, it it is a well. I mean, it's fourteen books plus a prequel, which I have not read the prequel, and it's not part of the books I've been reading right now. And um, yeah, it's a considerable. They're large books too. Very large. I mean, the last the last one, the last three audiobooks have all been over thirty five hours. Oh, yikes! Yeah. So I have. Let's see. What's my audiobook count say for the last book? I have thirteen hours left, and this last one was forty or forty two hours. So. So what are you going to do when you finally, finally finish? I'm going to catch up on the, like, month of podcast I'm behind <laughs> on. I've actually started, I am so far behind on podcast that I've actually started going through and deleting all my news and political podcast because by the time I listen to them, they're going to be so far out of date, it's not going to matter. Like none of them, because 90% of all of those things have to do with the election. And frankly, the election is probably going to be over before I get around listening to them. Yes. <laughs> so I've just been, it's like, I can delete that. I can delete that. I can delete that. <laughs> it's good. You're making wise strategic decisions. I mean, I don't even know. Let, let's see. After my cleanup, let me pull it up here on my phone. I have 60 unlistened to podcast so far. Hmm. That's quite a few. I have zero, but I did just get uh, caught up today. So, so yeah, I, I don't think I've listened to a podcast. And so, yeah, my, my oldest podcast is from the 3rd of October. Well, it has been a, a long time with the wheel. So, but yeah, now that you've reached the, the light at the end of the proverbial tunnel, You'll be able to get back on schedule. It's going to take me a while to catch up. I can tell that for sure. We'll see what happens. Maybe once I clear out a few more political podcasts and stuff and news-related stuff, it'll be better. Or just or just listen to the most recent episodes of all the various ones you have. When I start up new podcasts and try them out, I usually just start with the most recent one. And then I usually I try and give like three episodes before I decide whether or not I'm going to keep them in the list. And then when I pull them from a list, I might put them back later. if They continue on because sometimes shows, especially young shows will make improvements, but I don't want to sit through that. So I'll, I'll, I'll skip it and uh, just try them again later when I feel like I need to do some re Well, we're going to hit on some of that later on because we're going to talk about pinball podcasts that we listen to, to complement our video game discussion last time. It's a rough world podcasting. Yeah. So what have you been up to the last 
couple of weeks. Oh, gosh. Okay, well, I've been playing lots and lots and lots of Battlefield 1, and I've been playing quite a bit of Overwatch as well. And I've been also putting in some time on the Forest Horizon 3 and Hitman. So I've been doing some video game stuff. I took a week off of work last week. I just, I have so much vacation piled up that I try and just consume it. And I, then I don't really do anything. I worked around the house mostly, but that did let me get in uh, through some of my video game stuff. Uh, last episode where we had our discussion about American Pinball and released all that research I had worked on, I wanted to note that it seemed to get a lot of reaction in the sense that we've had a lot of people access the data. I, you know, I, I see how many people have gone and looked into the folder to pull whatever documents they want. And it has been pretty sizable. Most of that I'm assuming is coming from Pinside where I announced the episode outside of just our podcast, our podcast uh, thread. And so there wasn't a lot of discussion after that. So hopefully that means I did a good job laying everything out. Anyway, that's not a, as I noted then, and I'll note here again, that's not an always time thing, but that we plan to do. But if there's ever anything that sort of crops up along these lines again, uh, we may make an exception and we may do uh, our deep research dive, but we're not going to become the deep research podcast. So I just don't want anyone to get confused. We're still going to give our cheeky commentary. Let's see what else I've been working on. Oh yeah. iTunes. Uh, since I'm always asking for iTunes reviews, I thought maybe I should be giving out some <laughs> iTunes reviews because I don't regularly use iTunes, but I do have an account because I, I set it up a while ago. So I finally went, I gave the pinball podcast a review. I gave tilt through a review and I gave a uh, slam tilt podcast a review. And so two of those, uh, I've been listening to for quite a while now and slam tilt is new for me, but, uh, they have a really good dynamic. They're kind of like us, but snarkier. And so, and they're also sort of out of the Syracuse region. So that kind of, a that doesn't really matter, but it, I just took note of it since I did live there for a year. So I did that. And let's see, only other things have been work has been really, 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 really busy. We lost one of our uh, major contracts, unfortunately, from a financial standpoint, I will not miss the workload, but that cost us like 15% of our operating income. So I was working on budget changes because uh, I work on the budget and I put those out before I went on vacation, but I didn't hear anything the entire week I was gone. And so when I came back, we, there was a plan that was sort of laid out. We had a discussion that all the directors got together. We met with a couple of the higher up board members and it looks like we've got a, a plan on what we're going to do. No one's going to lose their job. So morale, which of course has been suffering, uh, should be better at this point because no one's no, no occupations will be terminated, uh, to deal with this. We just had to come up with kind of a multi-year ramp up to bring in additional funding. Well, that's good. I'm glad that you're not being forced to make cuts or anything. No, I, I, well, yeah, we're not gonna have to cut any jobs. We will be trimming back a lot of sort of, I don't want to say frills, but just some of the things that we do or what, what we tried to do lately to enhance some of our so services. No more team building trips to Vegas. No more team, but no, no, we didn't do a team building trip this year. And by trip, it usually means somewhere around Topeka. It's not, it's not a great deal, but you know, we had to scale back some of the out of state travel, which I never take advantage of anyway, but some of the other positions they do uh, for training and such. And some of the things we do with our conference, like uh, we're going to do some videography and things this year. We won't plan to do that next year. 
and we'll do that. And we still have a hole, but ever since I started working on the budget, which was uh, around 2010 for the 2011 budget was my first really, I've always beaten the budget expectations and we have shored up a considerable amount of cash. So we don't have to have a balanced budget for a few years. And so we can ramp up dues and such without saying it has to be balanced from the get-go and still be in a position where we don't turn into the state of Kansas, which has absolutely no reserves. We have more than half a year's worth of reserves to operate. We could operate without any income for six months. And then the only other thing I've been doing is uh, my LEDs for Jurassic Park. Oh gosh, I probably showed you in Jurassic Park first. Firepower was so easy to swap bulbs that I got spoiled. And Jurassic Park has been a nightmare because to do the GI, I'm having to lift off all the ramps and pull these to get access to the plastics to remove those so I can have access to the bulbs. So as of yesterday, I have all of the GI done. I have all of the bayonet bulbs done. For my birthday, I only got the bayonet-sized bulbs, the number 4447s. So I've placed an order to get the wedge bulbs in and, and some flashers and such. But most of those are actually, from all that I've seen, they're pretty easily accessible. So I have all the hard bulbs done now. And I'll put a video up on our Eclectic Gamers YouTube page like I did with Firepower with a side-by-side from what it looked like incandescent to what it looks like with LED. It's still something of a blended monstrosity at this point, so... Anyway, it will it will be finished. It shall it shall be done, and I will not miss working on that because I hate pulling ramps. It just <laughs> I see why no one ever did it. At least I'm getting a chance to clean all the plastics and stuff back there while I'm doing it. Well, that's something at least. I can't wait to see the difference. Yeah, I'm hoping it. Uh, firepower, I think I really liked because uh, in addition to just the extra brightness, which is helpful, some of the colors on the like translight and back glass. I think they look more natural than with the, than they do with the kind of yellowish glow of incandescent. Cause these are more, these whites are more white than the, even the warm whites are more white than incandescent. So anyway, it's going pretty well at this point. My fingers hurt, but it's going well. <laughs> so anyway, I guess. All right. Yeah. No, it's not, but only, <laughs> it's only good to my eyes, but uh, let's go ahead and move on into our first topic. Our first topic, as normal, is going to be pinball. <gasps> okay. Good. I know. It's amazing. And that's good, because that's what my notes say. That's good. I don't want to get the notes out of order. <laughs> oh, we'd never get back on track. Uh, this time around, we are starting up another tournament, uh, like we did for the uh, pinball game, the 80s era pinball games. And I'm going to let Dennis talk to you about it, because he's the one who set everything up. Well, that's ever so kind of you, though. We must give full credence and credit to Tony because it's his idea that we do one regarding pinball designers. And so this idea came about from Tony back when we were still running the 1980s tournament. Uh, we finally had enough time passed with that that I went ahead and started to try and pull some designer names. So we're going to call this the 2016 Modern Era Pinball Designers Tournament. And it's going to consist of 10 designers. And they were chosen based off of having top-ranked solid-state games on the pin side list. Now, I know some of these games have multiple designers credited. I've gone with the names that are most credited as being the quote-unquote designer when it comes to you know, layout sort of stuff. So here are the names, and I'm going to list a couple of games for each one in my kind of run-through. So for those of you who may not know pinball designer names, there's probably a lot of people, you may recognize some of the titles at least. So I tried to go with titles that are well-known. So the name lists are Brian Eddy, 
who did Medieval Madness and Attack from Mars, Dennis Nordham, who did Scared Stiff in Whitewater, George Gomez, who did Monster Bash and Lord of the Rings, Joel Balser, who did Wizard of Oz and Hobbit, John Borg, who did Metallica and Iron Man, John Papaduke, who did Theater of Magic and Tales of the Arabian Nights, John Trudeau, there are a lot of Johns in this list, anyway, uh, Ghostbusters and Creature from the Black Lagoon, Mark Ritchie, who did Indiana Jones, The Pinball Adventure and Taxi, Pat Lawler, who did Twilight Zone and The Addams Family, and Steve Ritchie, who did Game of Thrones and ACDC. So what I did is I talked to Tony about how do we seed these because all these guys have more than one game to their credit and the games are all rated sort of differently. So Tony suggested we don't, we just randomize it. So that's what we did. We took the names. I took all 10 of the names and I dumped them in over in random.org's list sort feature. And then I just dropped them into the bracket just sort of in the order that they came out. So because it's a 10 designer team, this round one is actually just two matchups because six designers got a buy and four of them have to fight face off. So for this first vote, and there will be a link in the show notes to the Google form, and we're doing the voting just like we did last time. Uh, it's going to be John Papaduke going against Joe Balser and Mark Ritchie going against John Borg. That's sort of the layout. We'll actually have more round two. We'll actually have more matchups in this first round just because of the nature of the buys. But, you know, you may see some names that you think are really big and they're going to have an early encounter. You know what? You just got to deal with it because we didn't see them. They just they were randomly assigned. So, yeah, that was my th- thought originally. That's why I went with the random is because it's like, you know, we could see these and put the obvious big names so they're they don't meet each other until the end. But honestly, I'm not a big fan of when stuff does that for something like this. My problem I ran into was I wasn't sure how to do it. Because, for example, you take someone like Brian Eddy, he doesn't have a lot of games. No. Most of his games are really, really high up there. I mean, but the three that I know, the only three that I know of with him are Medieval Madness, Attack from Mars, and Shadow, which is probably the lowest rated. But we know Attack from Mars and Medieval Madness are both top 10 games. So... If we were to average all of his games, he has an advantage versus, say, a John Borg, who also has top 10 games. But John Borg also has a lot of games back from his Daddy East era where he's going to be pulled way, way down. Same with John Trudeau. His his uh, Gottlieb era stuff is probably going to drag him down, even though you might argue that some of his titles are better than some of these other people. Like, you could pick a top title of his that's better than, like, Anything Mark Ritchie did. I'm just using an example, but you know, without meaning, you know, I don't mean anything against Mark Ritchie, but it's so I mean, the whole thing was like, well, how would you do it? Would you take all their games? Would you just take their top 50 games? And you know, I didn't know what would be the fair way to seed them. Yeah, I think the, I, the only way, if you were going to do anything other than straight random, if you were going to seed them, I think you couldn't use a real. Demographic, not demographic, but you couldn't really math it out and go based upon this or that. You would have to just sit down and look at them, and based upon your personal knowledge, we we could have probably built uh, a seed to you know to make sure like Steve Ritchie and Pat Lawler don't meet up until you know towards the end, or or Trudeau and Gomez don't meet up, to, you know that type of thing. I think just straight random is the best way to go in this case, because otherwise it'd just be arbitrary decisions. Yeah. The only other thing I thought I could think of that might have worked for seeding, but it's not the same sort of contest, would have been to not be designer against designer, but rather designer with a specific game. 
And then it end up a case of like Brian Eddy has to have his attack from Mars versus his medieval madness. And those are where would be the first rounds. And then eventually whatever game of his was voted on as the best would face off against, you know, George Gomez's best game sort of thing. But then it's, it ended up being, you're really still voting. You're just voting on the game at that point, not really on the overall thought on the designer. I, I felt so I didn't like that idea as much. That's one I toyed with. Yeah, I, I just I thought about it, and it's just it just seems like just straight random is the safest way to go. I mean, we just have to. I mean, if we end up with the horrible thing of having you know cruddy endings or something, but I don't think it'll happen. I think it'll be okay. <laughs> no, and I I think on our Facebook page I'll get a picture up of the bracket so people will be able. I didn't run through all the the round two matchups here because they're just not valid for voting yet. But I'll I'll get a picture up and people will be able to see what the next round setups are going to be where uh, where these two competitions will will put two people in against the other six that got a pass. But yeah, anyway, the pass was just because they're random and uh, go vote. Uh, I thought this would be a good time to kind of shift to another pinball topic we have, which is the, I thought it would be sort of fun for us, not, not having to limit it in any way to modern era or anything, but for us just kind of run through who we would say our top five designers are and, and why. So uh, Tony, who's, who's your number five? My number five, Brian Eddy. He doesn't have a lot of machines out there, but the thing is, is every machine he has out there is solid. And includes my favorite pinball machine of all time, Attack from Mars, and Medieval Madness, which is definitely in my top ten, probably in my top five if I was going to sit down and really draw it up, but it's definitely in my top ten. And that alone, I mean, for just because of that, and the fact that of all the machines he's made, all, all you know, all three of them, that, I mean, I know he's worked on other machines, but the three that are where he's been primary designer... Because uh, the shadow's a good game too. They've been all been so solid that them being, it just makes him have to. He has to be there. It's a it's a good pick. I think a lot of people would would definitely agree that he should be seen on the list. I I will point out, incidentally, he is not on my top five list, but that's just because I had to pick five and I I pushed him down because he had so few games. My number five is John Borg. Uh, and I, I chose him because I think he's done a lot of interesting pins and I think he gets overlooked a lot. He, even and he's been in the industry a really long time, but in a lot of ways, I think his design style is different than, well, they're all different designers, obviously, but almost that he's got more fluidity, fluidity to it. Like I can look at a table and I'm, I don't always know it's a Borg table until I'm, I'm told some of them share similar layout features as you would expect, but he goes and does a lot of different things with his various machines. So for example, I think Iron Man is an excellent example of how he takes a game, which by almost any definition is stripped down. A game that was told to be made on a cheap budget. And he made it brutal and he made it fun to play. Emphasis on brutal. That game is so brutal. But then you take a a game like Walking Dead, which is also brutal, but it's got a totally different layout from Iron Man. It's not a stripped down sort of machine. It feels quite a bit different, but it's also really, really hard. Metallica. A lot of people would probably say Metallica is John Borg's best game. Some, many people, I would guess, might say Metallica is the best pinball game ever made, and that's a that's a Borg design. So I, I do own one John Borg game. I own Jurassic Park, and I think that's a decent layout. I think it, like a lot of the Data East games, were hampered by uh, having a poor coding, but 
uh, thanks to Chad H, Jurassic Park and some of the other, a couple of the other Data East games, incidentally, have been fixed in that regard. So the rules are a lot more fun. But overall, I just think he has a lot of really good design concepts, and he's put out so many that I think are are good to great that I wanted him to be in the list, even if he was at the bottom of my list. So who's your number four, Tony? My number four, Mr. John Trudeau. Just for, you know, TX Sector, Creature from the Black Lagoon, Judge Dredd, and frankly, I love the Flintstones. Those machines alone pretty much can guarantee he's going to be on this list. But when you add in what Ghostbusters has been this year... I think it's a, it, the other question is just where does he go on the list? And that's why I went ahead and put him, for him, for me, he was four. He has more games than Brian Eddy that are very good, even though, like I said with Brian Eddy, Attack from Mars is my favorite game of all time. Right. But John Trudeau has so many games that are enjoyable. Even some of the ones that shouldn't be enjoyable, I enjoy. So I went ahead and put him on my list in the number four slot. Well, he's actually my number four as well. So, so yeah, that was interesting. Uh, it's an interesting coincidence. And I guess for me, what I, I'd say is that I like that Trudeau seems to be a risk taker with his designs. More, I'd say more so than any other modern designer, at least. Now, this doesn't always pan out. I think WWE is an excellent case in point, a game that I never enjoyed playing. But it is unique, and I, I, so I'll give it credit with that, with what they tried to do with the ring, what John tried to do with the ring. Uh, but sometimes uh, he'll, he'll hit a home run, and I think Ghostbusters is an example of that, where it's, it's got a pretty unique layout. The Slimer toy is pretty unique. The Magnus slings on the premium LE versions are very unique, and the, it just it works. I also think that John Trudeau tends to be probably the strongest on theme integration. So as much as I don't like WWE, when I play it, I feel like it's a wrestling match. And well, because, I don't because you're wrestling to figure out what's going on. Yeah, well, well, yeah, sure. sure. And the and the big ring up at the top kind of kind of slaps you in the face with yo, slap to Slim Jim in my ring. That you know, and I expect some sponsorship money from Slim Jim now. And so so you know, that was it was good theme integration. Uh, another one I'd point to is is Creature from the Black Lagoon. I don't actually care for the gameplay on Creature, but I think it might be the best integrated theme in all of pinball. Um, his games. Yeah. It's, and it's a beautiful game. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's amazing. A lot of his look really good and his games do tend to be hard, you know, shout out to the Trudeau gap, which isn't, uh, isn't a style of hard that really appeals to me versus the, just, I think the more, what I call more fair brutality of Borg's designs, but Gottlieb was sort of seen in its premiere days as the worst of the, major manufacturers i think trudeau's designs get respect for what they tried to accomplish and so i think games like victory and games like tx sector which i don't think are great games what they were trying to do like tx sector and making it feel like the ball was teleporting around that trudeau stuff i think worked really well so that's why he's my number four number three tony what do you got number three number three had a climb he had a climb out of a pit because he designed the worst game of all time. I know which one that is. Dennis Nordman designed Indy 500. And I'm sure he regrets it every day. As he should. And now, to be fair, he did also create Party Zone, Dr. Dude, and Demolition Man, which Dr. I feel balance out Indy 500, because I love all three of those games, especially Party Zone. 
And then he's followed up, you know, Scared Stiff and Whitewater and Pirates of the Caribbean are all also solid games. I, I know when we were up at the Pinapalooza, I played probably 10 or 15 games of Whitewater at least. I played Whitewater a lot. I love that game so much. It's it, I played a bunch on the Pinball Arcade. But, I mean, just the way the games play and the shots and this and that and the sheer fun that is Party Zone and Dr. Dude. Just made me, he, he had to go on my list, and I put him up at three, even with pulling himself out of the pit that is the stain of Indy 500. Dun, dun, dun. Poor, poor Dennis. He actually, Norm did not make my list. My my number three is Pat Lawler. I'm more of a, uh, if I were to describe myself, I'd say I'm a flow guy, not a toys guy, and Pat Lawler is a toys guy. But when it comes to making a world under the glass, I think of Lawler first and foremost. I think Twilight Zone is a marvel to behold, and I think it's a fun player, even though it's not a flow game. I think games like Bonsai Run, Whirlwind, and Funhouse are so interesting, not just because they're fun players, but the mechanical integrations each of those took keep us coming back because they're so fascinating and they're fun to shoot. And so I just think it blends so well to the core of what physical pinball is. And so that's why I'm really glad to see, you know, that, that toy style and all that showing up on dialed in and why I want to play dial in and love seeing a new Lawler design. I just, I think that while it's not my preferred style, it's really, really important to the hobby. He's the master of it. So he gets to be number three for me. My number two is Pat Lawler. Oh, well, I, I'm not surprised he's even higher up because I don't, I, I have trouble imagining him lower than three, but everyone's <laughs> tastes are different. So, yeah, I don't have a whole lot to add. You've pretty much said everything that needs to be said about Pat Lawler. I mean, he's simply, his games are standouts that you know it's a Lawler game just by looking at it. And, for games that can look so good and have so many interesting things and still be so fun to play where it doesn't feel like stuff's getting in the way is amazing. Though you would probably add Roadshow to the list of games, whereas you notice I deliberately did not <laughs> yeah, say Yeah, I noticed that you ignored Roadshow. I, I, I wasn't, wasn't going to call you on it. They all Road make Show mistakes. Is a good game. I enjoy Roadshow. Yeah, you know, there's a certain ones that don't need to be in that one. Uh, Roller Coaster Tycoon, sorry, Don. Uh, definitely <laughs> does not need to be said. But yeah, no, good pick. Good pick for number two. My number two uh, is Steve Kordak. And so I went way back on that one. You you really, you reached. I did. I did, but I wanted him on the list. So a lot of listeners may not know Kordak's name, but I will, I will summarize him by saying that he is a big deal. He spent most of his career with Williams, though I believe he actually started out with Ginkgo. And uh, I should note, I've, I've owned two Cordec games in my time. My three coins that I sold earlier this year was a Cordec design, and my Skylab, which was my first pinball machine, and the the one EM I still own is also a Cordec game. But even if you don't know his name, you know his innovations. So, while Steve Cordec didn't invent flipper fin- pinball, he was the one to first put two flippers at the bottom of the play field and have two buttons to control one for each flipper. And that was back in 1948 on a game called Triple Action, which was a Genko title. 
Then he also, when he did that, he decided that he would use direct current instead of alternating current for those flippers, which gave them enough oomph that they could actually get the ball back to the top of the play field. Before that, they had multiple flippers like Humpty Dumpty with multiple buttons, incidentally, for each set of flippers. And you'd have to be like pass the ball up, up and up if you wanted to ever get it back up to the top again. This was, of course, a huge innovation because it the game became much more about skill rather than chance. But it's not just the flipper layout that he gets credit for. Kordek invented the modern drop target, uh, which was done in on a game called Vagabond, which was a Williams title from 1962. And he also invented multiball, where a ball it's specifically a multiball where the ball could be locked on the on the play field and then later released, which he did in 1963 for Williams in a game called Beat the Clock. So while three coins um wasn't a game I really liked a lot, though it was far more challenging than Skylab, which is a relatively barren and simplistic game, and I wouldn't recommend them as great examples of his best designs. Overall, as an innovator, I think Steve Kordak needs to be on the list, and so he's number two for me. So that brings us down to number one. The big kahuna. I'm going to go ahead and say that we should go ahead and say our number ones at the exact same time. Okay. Because just by listening to the list... I'm pretty certain that we've got the same guy. I think you're probably right. Three, two, one. Steve, Steve Ritchie. Ritchie. It wasn't. Was it hard for you? Because it wasn't it, hard for me to put it, him at number one. It, that's the thing. I actually sat and when I was coming, going through the list and putting my list together, I was like, you know, this is he's really good, or this guy's really good. He should be on the list. He should be on the list. And it's like, oh look, I haven't added Steve Ritchie yet. Where should Steve Ritchie go? Can Steve Ritchie really be anywhere other than one? Where else? I mean, I guess maybe I could put him at two and Pat Lawler at one. No, no, I really can't because for every as amazing as Lawler's games are and as many of his games as I like, Steve Ritchie has just turned out game after game after game that just play and flow and are so wonderful. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was was like, okay, let's do a top five pinball designers. Uh, who am I going to put in uh, for the spots two through five? Yeah, because it was. I mean, I already knew Steve Ritchie was going into the number one slot. My actually, honestly, my biggest debate was whether or not to put Cordek at two or give Pat Lawler two, even though I don't love Pat Lawler the same way other people do. I didn't want a bunch of blowback because I put him way too far down on the list. <laughs> but no, I mean, Steve Ritchie's the king of flow. His design style is my favorite to play. So it's just by default, he has to be my number one. But, you know, there, there's variety to his style. So, you know, like yeah. the what I call brutal fast, like F-14 comp, Tomcat, which honestly is so fast that I'm afraid to play it because I can't keep up with the ball. Uh, to those more, you know, longer ball time, smooth games like Spider-Man, I think. But overall, it's just it's really fun to play as games, I think. Even World Poker Tour or or Firepower is an example, which is one of his games that isn't a flow game. But I still think it's fun. And how, how many Steve Ritchie games do you own? I, I own two. I own Firepower and I own the, the Star Trek game. And I and I play those two games quite a bit out of my collection i i would say right now it's mostly firepower because it's the newest newest one for me and whenever i only have three minutes it's like oh okay i can play firepower twice and i'll be okay but you know it's just sort of i i like i like the sort of basic design philosophy that he has where on most of his games if you make a 
If you make a successful shot, you're rewarded. And that reward is generally a return, a return to a flipper so you can shoot again. But if you brick those shots, you're in big trouble. So to me, it's like a video game mindset, an action video game mindset. And Steve Ritchie wants you to move, move, move. Don't hold still. It's all about moving. Yeah, you can trap up and shoot. That's fine. But I mean, the whole point is it's all designed so it can just keep you know flowing. There's a reason why they use that word and why we use that word. And so I don't like waiting for a pinball machine to do stuff. I don't like having to watch the DMD animation when I can't skip it. And Steve is really good about keeping my wait times down. So- Thank you, Steve Ritchie. <laughs> okay, well, those were our top five designers. We look forward to seeing everyone's votes on the on the contest we mentioned earlier. So let's go ahead and get rid of our last pinball topic now, which is just sort of a follow-up. We had that question last time from Don about what video game podcasts we like to listen to. So I thought this time we should go ahead and cover the pinball podcasts. And uh, Tony, I have a feeling your list is probably a bit shorter than mine, so I'll let you go first. Yeah, my list is considerably shorter than yours. Okay, I figured. Um, I listen to uh, Tilt Through, the Pinball Podcast, and let me just double check to see what else I still have in here. Coin Box, yeah, the Coin Box Podcast, that looks to be about, oh, and Canada. I've got Canada and Coast to Coast also. Okay. All right, so yeah, you're about half of what I am, so you're, yeah, you're around, I think I've got 10. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, the, the, those are the only ones I've got, and that accounts for, you know, like less than a quarter of my total podcast list. Right. right. <laughs> and for me, it's uh, the pinball ones are my my largest quantity. Um, they're not, but many of these aren't all that necessarily frequent. So I can't say that I actually listen to pinball most, but it is the most of my. I have like sixteen or so, I think I have seventeen podcasts currently in what I call my phone subscription. And that's all I'm going to go through is the phone subscription. I do sometimes listen to these, especially to keep up on what's going on. I'll listen to some one-off ones by going to their website, but these are the ones I subscribe to. So for me, uh, broken token classic arcade and pinball podcast. And I will note all of mine. And I think because every single one Tony mentioned is also in my list, all of his are linked in the show notes. So if you want to listen to any of these or subscribe to them, just follow those links. It's all and the more, the better. These people need listens to broken token. Uh, I just added this one. I just finished the first episode I've been able to, which was the most recent, uh, listen to today. It's sort of a, it's like game room junkies, which is, it's a focus on both arcade and pin collecting. And they seem to be a monthly as near as I could tell from the schedule. So the broken token, uh, as I just noted, game room junkies, arcade and pinball podcast. I named them back in the video game one. So. That they qualify here as well. Coast to Coast Pinball slash Wide World of Pinball. I have to name them jointly because they're sharing the same RSS feed. And so if you don't like one, you're kind of, st- I mean, you'd have to manually do it. So you're kind of stuck having to listen to both uh, unless you want to skip episodes, which you, you can do. But uh, to sort of segregate it beyond that, Coast to Coast is commentary around pinball news. And Wide World of Pinball is about competitive pinball with a particular focus on the IFPA system of points. That's would be my description. Canada's Pinball Podcast, I would describe that as originally focused on pinside drama, then it seemed to become more reactionary to news announcements, but then the host just announced he's burned out and the show's either on hiatus until 2017 or he's not doing it ever again. I don't know. So 
Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, I'm keeping it on the list because I'm flagging it as under hiatus, but he sounded very burned out. So who who knows? But, uh, all little these, kinks. All these things I've, I I haven't yeah. heard because I I haven't listened to a podcast this month. Okay, well you uh, <laughs> his his very very last episode it wouldn't actually download right for me because I think he deleted an episode and then replaced it and my phone was confused. So I listened to the hiatus one through SoundCloud, which is our host and also his host. It's a, it's a brief one. And he summarizes, you know, everything that's going on with that. Uh, he was the most frequent pinball podcaster. Uh, and that maybe that's why he burned out. I don't know. He was on some cases doing more than one episode a day, which would uh, drive me nuts. This is why Tony and I stick to our two week schedule because <laughs> schedules equal structure and structure equal, equal sanity. So sort of an alliteration for y'all, but uh, little Kings pinball y'all. podcast. Yeah. I'm my, my Southern's coming out today. Uh, this is another new one. Uh, it's actually new overall, and it's new to me because I just started listening to it. It's a two-host system, which we all know is the best system. And I'm not quite sure what the overall focus is going to be in terms of like the direction they're going to go. I'm going to say it's going to be collector and news reaction oriented from what I've heard so far. Then there's Pinheads Pinball Podcast, Pinheads with a Z. I can never get that out of my head from their little commercial breaks. It's uh, focused on the Australian pinball scene and it's a three-host system, very news-oriented. I also think of all the ones I've heard, they've got the best production value. So it actually feels like a full-fledged radio show. Unfortunately, they tend to only be monthly as well. So you only get to enjoy it once in a while, but they do a good job. Pinball Podcast, which, of course, uh, again, awesome two-host approach to news commentary. They also seem to talk more about mods than any of the other groups that I listen to. And we've had Don on this show before guest hosting. So you already have a, have a feel for at least one half of their equation. Uh, they're on a two-week system like we are. Coinbox Pinball Podcast, two-host approach with a focus on the hobbyist operator side of pinball. The schedule is, I would describe, sporadic. They actually just finally had a new episode come out. I think they officially shoot for trying to have one a month minimum. And I, I think lately it's been more like one every other month. Then Slam Tilt Podcast, two, two host commentary approach. As I noted, I've just added them. Uh, and as I noted earlier, very, very snarky, uh, but they have a really good dynamic. So if you don't mind some profanity and you like snark, they're definitely the ones to listen to because they have a really good banter. The, again, very news focused uh, to target their commentary on. Then Tilt Through, which Tony listed, it's a three-host system, and its focus is on competitive pinball, but it's not IFPA exclusive. You know, There's not a lot of diving into the point systems and such. Personally, it's my favorite for if you want something that's pinball tournament talk, I'd say go to Tilt Through. They're, they're, I think they're the best ones at it. And then finally, I wouldn't really count them, but it'll throw it out. I do actually subscribe to us. I have to make sure that the episodes <laughs> download. And I do for a third time. You know, we, we, I get to hear it now when we record. I hear it when I edit it. And I do listen to it through to see what I don't like. Like if I keep saying, you know, like I do all the time and I try and take notes on this stuff and get better about it. So, uh, but we are two host format and we do video games and tabletop. Dennis is the better of the two hosts. Sure. And, uh, because I will never give you vocal fry. You know that. You hear my nasal <laughs> voice and you know that's never going to happen. And that gives you comfort. And while we're not as snarky as, as the Slam Tilt podcast, we are pretty snarky compared to most of the other ones. So, And we're clean. One of the few that are uh, clean lyrically. Just don't talk to Tony S in person if you think we actually always speak that way because oh, that is yeah. that is not the case. We are um, putting on our best Sunday dress and our best foot forward for for when we record. 
Yeah, when but when I'm not recording and I'm not I'm not actively checking it down, I am very um, uh, blue collar. I'll go with that. I go, I, I always go with salty. I'm well, relatively salty. Good, but anymore, yeah. everybody uses salty for angry, and I'm not angry. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I guess I need to – these kids today, they're changing my lingo. Okay, I'll have to, <laughs> I'll have to revise yeah, that. Like lingo. Yeah. Yeah. Hey. Hey. <laughs> we, we, need to be, we need to be accepting of both the old words and the new. Uh-huh. And speaking of old and new, let's go ahead and move on to our first video game topic, the video game segment, normally the second segment of this podcast. We've been for quite a while now, off and on, first with you and now also with me talking about Overwatch. Yes, because you finally played it and suddenly you realized that I was right and it's just a bloody amazing thing. It's enjoyable. I will agree. There are some things they could work on. Symmetra needs some major work, Tony. She needs some major work. I feel really she bad for her. She could be buffed a little bit. Yes. I mean, that I don't see her on the pro scene is one thing that I don't see her on the amateur scene says another <laughs> says something is, else I've entirely. Seen, I've seen her on occasion be played in a really, a really, really amazing ways. But normally what I see is somebody will take her and will play her like at the very beginning for the first couple rounds or not rounds, but the first couple minutes of a fight and then they'll switch off. Sure. And I've actually seen her used that way uh, in the on the pro scene because I've been trying to watch the Overwatch World Cup and related competitions that have been happening lately. And there have been a few high-level teams that will very situationally and always very early rely upon a Symmetra because they're trying to – is usually the defenders trying to use her teleport to stay close to the first point. Yeah. So that otherwise it's essentially in the pro scene. If they lose the point once, they'll never get it back. We are my reference to the old and the new. Let's hit on the new. There was a new character announced. Yeah, we put it up on the Facebook page when they finally uh dropped last night. And uh that is Sombra. Sombra. It's been hinted about for a long while now. Is now actually announced and we've got good looks at her and they've put out one of their wonderful animated shorts with her and and i have to say that i'm i hate her already yeah i was going to ask what your overall thoughts were on sombra i've seen a bit of a summary of her abilities and quite frankly and i know this is still on paper and so i'm really jumping the gun but hey we're a commentary podcast so we jump the gun all the time I think she's overpowered, and I'm really concerned. I, I, I think she's going to get played. I think she might be more critical to teams than Lucio is, though, and that's scary. Yeah, it, it could be. The, the ability to lock a team down and basically shut them off so they literally can't do anything for a period of time, and the ability to just totally wipe out a Reinhardt shield. I mean, yeah, it's we're using her ult, but it opens them up for other ults. I mean... If you combine a Sombra with a Zarya and then any damage-causing ult, you have a team wipe without even trying. Right. And that's where I'm, I'm imagining, I'm, I'm looking at and seeing after watching so many matches of, and the Overwatch World Cup's going on right now, actually. And I was just before we started recording, I was watching the bronze match between Sweden and Finland. And you look at the team makeups and of course at the pro scene where they've totally min-maxed and done all the analysis and you see such consistent groupings and I'm seeing these specs on Sombra and I'm thinking, oh, she's going to be a mandatory. She's going to be a mandatory character. She's going to go in because as long as you have her ult ready, 
you now have a character that could say it doesn't matter if cur- currently in the in the format it's basically if the teams are roughly equal skill and they're going to be fighting over who's going to wipe and who's going to you know protect the payload or get the point or whatever generally it's the team with the most ults wins or they should but if she can turn off every single ult it doesn't matter if they have six ults ready to go she turns them all off so i just don't see how you don't run with her which means of course yet another reason why Symmetra will never be played or Torjorn or Hanzo at the pro level. You don't see him too much. You know, there's a, there are a bunch soldier 76. You don't see at the pro level. There's You're a lot of characters pro level that people don't just spam arrows into a door and then act <laughs> like they're gods. They do at the very, very start, just like with Widowmaker, they'll try and get an insta headshot from their base. And if it doesn't happen, they immediately then go back in and then they change their character to Genji. <laughs> I'm just saying. Yeah, there. I mean, there's. Yeah, there's some. There's a little bit of Hanzo. Uh, more McCree though. You know, McCree, Reaper, Genji. Those are. You know, there's like a DPS. I don't know. I mean, it all depends. And what they change after season two will probably shake it up again. I had read about three by three teams. Most of the World Cup teams I'm seeing are two by two by two, where you have two TB, two tanks, two healers, and two DPS. But the tanks are always Reinhardt and Zarya. The healers are always Lucio and Anna, and then the DPS varies a little bit. And occasionally you'll see someone do something weird, like take Zenyatta instead of Lucio, but then they lose because they made a mistake. Really, Zenyatta instead of Lucio, it's instead of Zenyatta instead of Anna. Is Anna's Nana boost is too powerful. The Nana boost is what. I, yeah. I guess so. I guess that's the reason. I've uh, I uh, that Nana boost on, especially on like a uh, Reinhard, can be just devastating. Mm-hmm. Though it is hilarious to see. Uh, Anna shoot a nano boost at Reinhardt and then have Lucio run in front of the Reinhardt and take the hit instead. I've seen <laughs> that happen a couple of times now. Ouch. So, hey, nano boosted Lucio. Have have fun with that. Yeah, the nano boost is just too powerful for helping wipe another team. So I guess the logic was get rid of Lucio because Zenyatta's transcendence is so powerful to protect against an attack, much like Lu- basically that the ultimates are essentially the same functionally. But in reality, they aren't because with Lucio, once his uh, move is in place, everyone's got that shielding. With Zenyatta, it actually has to tick. And so, so there were so there was an analysis done and explained how if, the, if a Reaper fired his Death Blossom off and he was nano boosted and he can kill with less than essentially within one tick that uh, that it would be possible for Zenyatta to fire Transcendence and still not actually be able to save people because he doesn't heal enough versus yeah. that first hit of damage and it's just sort of that high end analysis yeah you know my level casual level that's not going to matter i i'll go in with zenyatta all the time but honestly it's at the point when i choose uh, i don't choose quick play but i choose the competitive play which i've been doing over the last week if i'm in there and no one on my team is lucio i switch to lucio because i think there should always be one yeah i if if we have no healers i will play lucio if we have a mercy I will normally not play Lucio just, but sometimes even then, like I've like been playing with the person playing Mercy for a little while and it's obvious that they're not a good Mercy player. I'll switch to yeah. Lucio, but it's pretty rare to play in, at least in competition. I've seen the, the competitive that doesn't have a uh, Lucio. And on the other hand, in quick play, I actually play quick play more than anything else. Because I like to be able to bail out in the middle of a match because of the kids or stuff like that. So I play a lot of quick play. But that also leads to the occasional insanity and the pure BS of, hey, look, 
They've got Lucio in five Mays. You know what? I'm just going to rage quit this now. <laughs> All right. And I had actually heard yesterday from Mike, who's guest hosted a couple times on this podcast, that the Blizzard has announced that will no longer be the case on their next update. Quick play will be one character only. Like really? Yes. Quick play? Yeah, they're going to add another mode where you'll be able to choose to play and you can all be the same character. But they're taking that out of quick play. They're going to add like casual play or something. Some some new, it'll still, it'll still be a way you can do it if you want. And they're going to add things like being able to go in and do one-on-one or three-on-three matches and things like that. It's going to be in, like incorporated with that sort of stuff. But quick play is basically going to be drop in, drop out, but otherwise like competitive play where no repeats on the same team. Everyone has to be a different character. Well, that's going to be interesting. I mean... I've seen some sheer fun where even just two people, the two of the same character on a team, I mean, two junk rats on a team are, can really be horrible. I guess that would be a good reason to get rid of it. But. Exactly. And this is why I've not been playing quick play as much lately is I don't like having to deal with this, what I call troll teams where they are <laughs> just trolling. And so I mostly, I've seen it with ba- junk rat. I see it a lot with bastion where there'll be six bastions on defense um, sometimes you'll see Maze, and it also just looks weird from a conceptual standpoint of there being multiple Lucios and stuff. It's like, what is going on? I don't know. I think it'd be really interesting if every time a character was selected, it meant the other team also couldn't use them. Well, yeah, that but then you're going to no, this whole other effect. Yes. At that point, you're looking at like, you know, League of Legends type stuff where you, you know, block out characters and this and that. and Mm-hmm. Because you people would be, you'd be specifically grabbing characters as quickly as possible to lock it out. Anyway, with with Sombra, I'm also a little concerned about her portable teleporter because apparently she can deploy through that even while it's still in the air. So she just throws it and it will zoom her over. So I imagine she's going to have mobility levels that we're thinking. I mean, she's basically a tracer. Yeah, yeah. I. The mobility thing doesn't bother me so much as the hacking and shutdowns. The fact that she can hack, and not just with her ultimate, but normally, and this and that worries me. The teleportation, I mean, it's going to depend upon the cooldown, but we've already got multiple characters who easily end up where you did not expect them to be without it. So I'm not overly worried about that. We're already dealing with it with other characters. I I am with her because of her ult being the shutdown. Because now to me, that. it says it says that she's going to be able to get behind you easily. Because unless there's a way to shoot the teleporter out of the air, like unless McCree can kill that thing, then she's going to be able to easily get behind you more easily than any other character outside of Tracer and uh, Reaper. Then she's going to turn off all of your ults and all your shields. So to me, that's why I think she's OP. It's the combination of both. If she had, if she was a Reinhardt and had trouble moving in, at least people can try and contain her when they know that's time for her to be able to ult. But with her ability, just chuck that thing like a grenade and end up behind you, throw it on top of a building and end up beside you. I, I'm afraid Sombra's dangerous, man. And that doesn't even take into fa- take into account the fact that she can turn invisible. Yeah, I didn't. We didn't even talk about that part. What the heck? She's a ghost. Ghost. Yeah, I'm. It's. She looks like a lot of fun to play and a lot of annoyance to play against. But well, we'll just have to see. But uh, yeah, I'm definitely concerned that she's going to be an S S rank character coming out of the box because it just sounds like this stuff is way too 
way too useful as long as unless you were playing with a total pickup team and there's no co coordination and no communication then she's probably fairly useless but on any coordinated team i think she is going to be the most devastating addition since lucio yeah not that Lucio was a devastating addition. He was a launch character, but... It's a devastating addition. Once they learned him, he's a devastating addition. Devastating. <laughs> but anyway, so some news for all you Overwatch fans. And if you haven't played Overwatch, play Overwatch. It's fun. Yep, we all love the Overwatch. And you know what? If you don't have Overwatch, you haven't played the Overwatch, at least watch the uh, videos, because all the videos they put together are really good. Yeah, they are. Their Blizzard videos are, are awesome. They're great shorts. Let's move to our second video game topic. I wanted this one in. I wanted to talk a bit more about Battlefield 1 because I've been putting in, as I noted in my intro, a lot of time on it. And there have been quite a few changes since the beta, which is when I had previously played it. Which And that was all just multiplayer. So now I've been able to experience the campaign and I've worked on a number of the multiplayer modes. So I just thought I would kind of give some impressions overall because I really enjoy the game. That's my bullet point summary. Battlefield 1 is an excellent Battlefield game on all sorts of levels. So what you're saying is it's Call of Duty. <laughs> Ouch. So mean. I will give... Um, and. I and I must admit, as I think I have admitted before, but I, I lose track. I haven't played a Call of Duty in a long time. So the most recent Call of Duty I played, and I only played in local multiplayer, was World at War. So we're talking before the Infinity Ward crew broke away and decided it would be more fun to make Titans. Uh, it's just... There have been a lot of changes. But one thing I would, based off of that, give credit to Call of Duty for that I feel Battlefield suffered at was the single player. Yeah. The, outside of the Bad Company games, which are very tongue-in-cheek and silly, stupid, quite frankly, in terms of what's going on with them, the campaigns have been dreck, just Bore. I can't even describe. I couldn't tell you the difference between Battlefield Three and Battlefield Force campaigns. I don't remember them well enough to tell them apart. All I know is I never cared about any of the characters, including the one I was playing, and everything was generic to the to the degree that you felt like you were just playing tropes. Which I know we're going to hit on in in the tabletop Yay, section. It's tropes. That's right. Tie-ins galore. It's what I do. This campaign though works really really well. They did a. A couple of things that I think allow that to be the case. The first is it's not one overall campaign anymore. They broke it into vignettes. So you've got six little stories that you're playing as. Those stories give you a taste of different aspects of the front during World War One, and also give you tastes of different aspects of the gameplay that you experience in multiplayer. So there's a campaign that's very tank focused where you're a tank driver. There's a campaign that's very pilot focused. There's a campaign that's very focused on allowing you to do the desert stuff. So you're gaining experience with the cavalry horse. You're gaining experience with trying to sneak around and, and break into things. I mean, stealth is, it's, it's not a stealth game. Battlefield's never been a stealth game, but it's, it is key in certain instances on how these open maps work that you actually try and just sneak in around and knife people behind or, or just slip past them so they don't know because they'll destroy you because they're in a vehicle and you can't take out vehicles, but you want to take the point. So you wait for them to leave. I mean, there is a, a strategic element to some of the maps where stealth is important. Anyway, all of the campaigns I feel treat the war with reverence and it's not. Like a, just a pew, pew, pew. Yeah, well, we're soldiers and we're tough. I mean, it's... 
so the way they, it's not like their little meme things they released the other day. I don't think I saw the meme things, so oh, I don't you know. Didn't see the yeah, where they release you know like screen caps of the guy with the flamethrower burning people, and then they they tagged it with the hashtag hot night at the club and stuff like that. No, no, that is not subtitled while he's actually burning people in the game. Now you may say that when you're actually playing the multiplayer, but with the single player, they very much take the, this is a war that no one liked sort of approach. So you're, it's bleak, it's unhappy, it's miserable, and it's handled very, very seriously. The only and the vignettes in some ways are probably elements of World War One that most people aren't very familiar with. I have to say that very, very loosely because, in my opinion, most people don't know anything about World War One. And in a lot of ways, I understand because World War Two is not only more timely, but in a lot of for a lot of people, it's more interesting. But uh, the only vignette that will probably ring a bell for anyone is the final one, the desert one. You can do them in any order, actually. There's the furthest right on the screen to select. And that's has to do with the Arab uprising against the Ottoman Empire, which T.E. Uh, Lawrence was involved with, or Lawrence of Arabia. Those of you who haven't seen Lawrence of Arabia, watch Lawrence of Arabia. I know it's old. It's still a really good movie. So is this a like, really good movie, like actual really good movie, or really good movie like your insane love of crawl good movie? No, no. I think it's pretty universal that Lawrence of Arabia is a sweeping epic that's not only visually stunning, but has an incredible musical score. Yeah, so, I, I knew that. I just wanted to make fun of you about Crawl again. I know you did. But as I proved that President Obama is concerned about Crawl on Facebook, according well, to yeah, the Onion. We, have, we, we, have, we need you know, like an alpha strike to remove the possibility of a Crawl reboot. I don't see why we're spending money on F-35s when we can just have fire mares. <laughs> fire mares can travel 10,000 leagues in a day i don't understand why we need jets but yes no anyway uh but so many of our listeners probably don't know lawrence of arabia so and i feel a little bad for them i wouldn't watch it over and over again but it is worth seeing once anyway that's the only story that i had any familiarity with and you do not play lawrence he's just in some of the cut scenes you you always play somewhat an unknown person in all instances but so campaign it is good Bob of arabia um, now, uh, in terms of multiplayer, I have not done all of the modes. There are a lot of modes that never appeal to me because they appeal to Call of Duty people like Team Deathmatch style stuff. And I get my fill of that in Overwatch. I don't do that in Battlefield. I have played three modes, Conquest, Rush, and Operations. And Conquest historically has sort of been, well, it was not the first thing that I'd say Battlefield was really known for, as of three at least, Battlefield 3, Conquest has been the most popular mode. That's the one where you go and you try and capture various points, and the other team's trying to capture the same points, and you just fight over those points. Kind of like, um, well, you know how Overwatch, okay. you're trying to claim the little circle. Yeah, it's, kind of, it's a zone capture type. Sure. That's more based around your actual team comp and stuff than just who's got the best KD. Yes, yes. Well, supposedly. So, but in the case of Battlefield, it's more than one point active at a time. It's usually somewhere on the order of three to seven. So, because the maps are much more open. That, uh, that was what the beta, that the beta offered that experience on one map. Uh, I've tried it on all the maps now, I believe. They're all very, very well balanced. This was not a problem for DICE in the past. They've always balanced Conquest really well. So that still feels really good. Rush mode, which is, there are two, 
boxes, we'll call them, telegraphs in this case, where the offensive team is trying to destroy both of them. The defensive team tries to protect them, and they if they lose, they have to fall back several times. And the way it's done is someone has to set a bomb on them, and if it doesn't get defused by the defensive team in time, it explodes, and then there's just one box, and then when both are gone, you fall back and rinse and repeat. That mode hasn't changed very much. It feels like I haven't spent as much time on it. It feels like it is better balanced on the map setups than Battlefield 4. Battlefield 4 was horrible. Rush felt totally tacked on. And there were just some times where it was like, how in the world is defense supposed to guard these? And on the flip side, you'd have other maps where it's like, how in the world is offense ever supposed to get near these? It's all bottleneck. So there's some issues with Rush on this. I don't want to say it's perfect. There are still some instances where it feels like they weren't the best laid out, but it, it does look like they actually thought about it this time. So that was really nice. So it's more of a, so it's a, uh, it wasn't a back burner add in secondary item this time around. It was a, primary concern for him you think i i think it was you know i still don't understand why battlefield 4 was so awful with the rush it was the second most popular mode uh even out and then again it was still the second most popular mode even with how awful it was so it's just on four well you know four launched with a ton of bugs and the servers were on, it was it was a real mess and it's just i wonder they got they were so rushed to try and get out to compete against call of duty that my impression was they didn't spend enough time on the map design, and this time they did. Uh, the third multiplayer mode that I've played and the and last is the, a new one for them called Operations. And this is pretty interesting in the sense that it functionally works like a blend of Conquest and Rush. There are usually two points, but you're not setting bombs. You're going and you try and capture the points. You have to get them all claimed as the offensive team at the same time. And if they're fully claimed, you know, they can't be contested. No Overwatch overtime mode allowed. You have to fully claim them. And when they're both fully, or I should say all fully claimed, then defense has to fall back like they would in rush. And a lot of times th- that count will change. Sometimes there's just one point and I've seen it go as high as three. And there are like four different operative modes that sort of campaign themes where and the way it works is if the defense holds and offense fails to take out every single point the next game starts the next stage of the operation it's at the same exact point but the offense gets help so they bring in a behemoth so like a giant killer zeppelin or an attack train that rains artillery you get that extra support to try and push it through offense has three games to attempt to take out all of those points if they do offense wins if they fail defense wins and if they don't make it all the way they get a big old bonus help them out to maybe do better next time right first time they get no what's they call these behemoths every game every like in conquest i should say in conquest every map has a behemoth and if one team is winning by a lot and only by what's ever defined as a lot, it's brought out for whatever team is losing. So you can't. So it's steal basically it. the hey, you're getting raffle stomped. So here's something that might help you out. Yeah, think of it like playing Smash Melee and getting the getting the power up that gives you your ultimate. Except it's actually given to whoever's doing the worst. Interesting. Right. So in the alpha, which I didn't play, in the alpha there was a map where. There's a giant, massive Zeppelin, and that Zeppelin has multiple gun turrets on it, and, and it's, it basically is a World War One AC-130, is what, what it is. 
Hmm. And it just rains death. And in the beta, which I did get to do, was uh, an attack train. The train, one part, like all the train cars are all side gunner cars. And one of the train cars has the ability to do artillery strikes from the train. And you can, you can capture points with it. It's like a, a, it's a vehicle. They move around. You actually have control. So the Zeppelin pilot can fly it over to a certain point and start capturing the point. Every person in the Zeppelin counts just like if they were on the ground. In operations, for the first time, the attackers don't get to have a behemoth. But if they lose, they get a behemoth. If they lose again, they get the behemoth again. And in theory, every time, they've had to fall further and further back. Defense doesn't get anything new. And they're stuck as far back as they were pushed prior. How many points you earn depends how great you did on your defensive stops. Like how long you lasted before you had to give up point A so, and fall back. So the, okay, so at no point does the defensive time side in that case get the bonuses. The bonuses are purely on the offensive sides. Right, because if let's say the attackers go and they get all the way through to the very end, then the the defense is lost. They lost that whole map, and it moves every operation consists of two possible maps so it goes to map number two if they continue to get steamrolled then it's just over that's just how it is they don't get to re defense doesn't get to retry they the second map is their one retry basically offense has to has three tries to win two maps total nice yeah it's actually kind of interesting the concept's awesome i uh, I've tried them all. I have one on both sides, but I do feel that at least on some of the maps, it seems like it's very tilted towards offense. I don't know. Again, they're very, very long. To play fully through can be almost an hour. That's a lot of time to commit. So it's not a mode I turn to a lot. I really like the idea of it, but it does seem like, especially once they get the behemoths out, <laughs> it's just... This is not always a great way to fight the behemoths. I, I've been on maps, including maps we've won, where we just ignored the behemoths and let them rain death on us. It was just not worth it trying to fight them. We had to be too busy fighting the ground forces to make sure they don't take the points. So a few other clarifications. Uh, we talked a bit about behemoths already, so I won't get onto that. We talked about the map, so I won't get onto that. Uh, battle packs. Uh, don't. These are just like skins that you unlock for your weapons and stuff. Much like Overwatch, they're random. The awards are random. But unlike in Overwatch, the earning of the battle packs is also random. I don't get it. I mean, uh, yeah, you can microtransaction and buy some if you want to buy some. But I complete a match, I'm the number one player, I don't get a battle pack. But another time I complete a match, I'm like ranked 14 out of 16 and I get one. It doesn't. There's no rhyme or reason to it. They're just randomly given out. It's stupid. I think that those should... I'm okay there with them giving... Be, there has to be something about the, uh, that says why the how and why they're given out. There's a certain number that are always given out at the end of a match. I think they are randomly distributed equally amongst both teams. That would be my guess, but I don't know. But it doesn't... No, there have been times where I've been number one and number two and I get them and times when I don't and I'm number one and number two. I am top ranked a lot in battlefield and i do not always get get a prize when i'm top ranked so i just think they're being randomly assigned and i think that should be if they want to give out random battle packs that's fine but i definitely think that you should get one if you're in the you know like well again we're doing lots of overwatch comparisons you know at the end of overwatch when you're the you were the top uh kills or top heals and things like that yeah Battlefield 1 does this at the end as well. You see like five characters are noted for like he captured the most flags. He uh was the best scout. Da, da, da. They do those people don't always get the battle packs. 
So I don't know. It's weird. Would you prefer if it was more like Overwatch's experience system where you earn so much experience and every time you hit a certain plateau of experience, you earn a pack? Yeah, I would. And you just get, you know, you know, you get extra experience when you play. Uh, if you get into that, oh, Bob had the most kills, so you get a little extra experience because you got, you know, because you were a little better. But otherwise, you still, oh, your team one gets you so much experience. You didn't quit the match halfway through, gets you so much experience, stuff like that. Yeah, though I do need to note, uh, I do believe you do get a battle pack every time you level. Okay, so they do have a leveling system in play already. Yes, it's just so this is just for extra battle packs. Yes, but the volume of the amount they give out for end of matches. I mean, you have to play so many games before you level up once you're you know past level 20 or whatever that it's the primary source of battle packs but it's random so i this is weird i don't hmm. know i just find it i find it odd i would rather them if they want to keep it simple i'd rather them like give a battle pack to everyone on the winning team or something i don't know or at anyway, least so. be a little bit more out there about what earns you the battle pack yeah, if it's not, I mean, or let you just say it's it's random. We just randomly give out so many, and if you're only randomly giving out so many a game, why not give out one to everybody? Mm-hmm. But it is just weapon skins, so it's not. I don't care that much. I care more about my my packs, my loot crates, as I call them, my loot crates in uh, Overwatch than I do in Battlefield because you don't get to customize the character looks in Battlefield One, so you always are period specific to whatever team you're on, which makes sense. So. It's yeah, just, that does make sense. It's just the weapon skins. As much as I love my Dr. Junkenstein outfit for Junkrat, I can see where something like that wouldn't fit in with this harsh, gritty reality World War One game. Yeah, and in like Battlefield 4, I think the weird, the weirder outfits, you only ever saw those if you did like pure deathmatch, which no one played, because you're always on teams. You're always Russians or Chinese or Americans or something. A couple other things I thought I would note. They have nerfed horses. Horses were OP in the beta. They're still challenging to kill, but not ridiculously challenging where it feels like the horse could kill a tank. Uh, So that was a good improvement. Um, Heavy tanks. Heavy tanks, I think, feel like proper heavy tanks. Under the beta, the light tanks were actually probably the best choice. Uh, They were single-person tanks, but they were very, very strong. Now, it makes a lot of sense strategically to go with a heavy tank. It would still be better to take a light tank if you aren't going to have any support gunners with you. But if you know people who are going to help you out, then taking something like a land ship or a heavy tank makes more sense. And I think a heavy tank always makes more sense than a land ship. And I think everything makes more sense than an artillery truck. But sometimes you see people with artillery trucks trying to artillery make Artillery is difference. important. It's the king of the battle or the queen of the battlefield. Catch it is. It, it is. Uh, no, they do great damage. The pr- only problem with artillery trucks is so easy to kill them. That's the only issue. Uh, and then in terms of the classes, there are four classes, medic, assault, scout, and support. They're pretty well balanced. I say it with that weird little up twinge tick in my voice because I think support probably needs a little bit of help. It's def- based off of the number of uh, the achievement ranks I've seen on true achievements of people getting to rank two in medic, assault, and scout and support far and away the least number of people are doing up to two on support. And I think it's because they kind of feel worthless. They resupply ammo, which is great. That's always been a support role in battlefield games for a long time now, but they don't have a really great way to fight vehicles. So it's like, okay, well they assault can do that and scout can kind of do that. 
And I think they've got some ways where support can kind of try to do that, but it's like, and how often you need to refill ammo in a game where you die a lot. It's not, that's the, even once you die and you respawn, you get all your stuff back. So medic, you know, is just more valuable because they're able to revive people. So I, I just think that support probably needs a little bit of love, not a ton, but just a, it's definitely the least played class. I play it sometimes because they get the light machine guns. So anyway, that's all I had to say though, but I really am liking it a lot. And so when I want my more pure uh, strategic overall battlefield play, this is the game I turn to it is very good. I do recommend it. I might have to give it a try. I've never, I played, I think the last call of duty I played was modern war affair. Uh, and I haven't played one since then. And for me, it was a, all about the single player. I never really liked the post, like Call of Duty, like the original right. uh, online play and interaction and stuff. Maybe Battlefield One sounds like with the whole team stuff. It's actually might be interesting enough for me to give it a shot, and that it has single player game play that's been that seems to actually be interesting because I always like the single player game. Yeah, no, no. I, Call of Duty for me is. It's a it's a game franchise that chiefly revolves around deathmatch and team deathmatch, but not but not class based. So everyone's essentially the same. I mean, you pick different weapons and stuff, but everyone's the same. That's how I think. If that's not true anymore, that may be the case. But that's what I think of it. Yes, yeah, that's I just why I into deathmatch, team deathmatch right. stuff. Like that's I why I like my blood back in the quake days. Games like Overwatch, where you're actually picking tactical character choices. That I like. So I like Team Deathmatch like that. I don't like Team Deathmatch where it's just like generous soldiers against generous soldiers. Oh, I found the rocket launcher. Yeah, like you said, I I had my quake days. Uh, That was fine for the time. Uh, Shooters have evolved. I like strategic gameplay and tactical gameplay. And so Overwatch and Battlefield appeal to me for slightly different reasons, but fundamentally they both rely upon building teams where character classes make a difference. They determine winners and losers. Yeah. So let's go to our third and final section, Tabletop. And I know you have a fascinating thing for us to go into, a fantasy fascinating. fascinating. Yeah. Uh, I have not played any Tabletop games since our last episode at, at all. And I haven't really been, I haven't really done any Kickstarter looking. I haven't looked, found anything interesting. So I was, all I've really done is sit down and been building some character backgrounds and stuff for some of the 5e characters that I've been considering putting together or modifying, like uh, putting actual backgrounds with. I already did with the Barbarian I had from Kent Con, and I've now started doing one with the Paladin I had from Kent Con. But um, I decided that I was going to try and avoid doing some of the standard fantasy character tropes and stuff that you'd see. And that got me to thinking about all of the horrible fantasy tropes that I have actually done in the past in RPGs and stuff. And it was just kind of humorous. So I thought we'd talk about fantasy tropes and their place or place not to be in RPGs and such. Okay. Well, that should be interesting. So where kind of where are you wanting to start? Well, I was going to start. One of my standard characters is a dwarf of some kind. And... I have completely in the past embraced the the full-on big beard, loves drinking and fighting, no women, or the women look just like the men, Scottish-accented dwarf. 
I've played so many variations of this character, and uh, that and I never even really thought about it being you know as a trope in of itself until I was actually working on my paladin this year uh, that I got at that pregen and started fleshing it out. I realized that really every dwarf I've ever made, paladin, warrior, anything else, has basically been the exact same guy. Yeah, I I, I could see that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're all, they're, they're, they've all been the same person, every single one. No matter what they are, good, bad, in between, it's all basically the exact same guy. And every dwarf in fantasy stuff seems to be pretty much variations on the theme. That's a, yeah, that's a good one. Uh, one I would, I would bring up that I know I've done is, it seems like any time I've ever played a wizard character, they have always been older and wise and mysterious. Even if they, it doesn't matter, the, you know, ideologically, they could either be good or bad, but they always have to have that air of mystery. They generally are, all of mine that I can think of have been old. And, you know, usually they've got the beard and they're really, really wise because they spent their whole time studying. You know, I've, I've never just like said, what if, why couldn't I have like a wizard savant? Just like, he's stupid. He's really stupid, but he's good at magic. I've never done it. I've never had a, a young whippersnapper be a wizard, but someone has to learn to be a wizard. You'd think they'd probably be young. I mean, there was a movie from the 80s, not Crawl, though I want to talk about Crawl, called Dragon Slayer. I don't know if you ever saw Dragon Slayer. I've seen Dragon Slayer. Okay. It's about this guy who's an apprentice to an old, wizened, bearded wizard, and the wizard is out of it at the start of the movie. So his apprentice, who is an apprentice wizard, is bumbling his way through the rest of the film. But despite that attempt to be something different in that film, when it's always come to RPGs, I've always seen the wizards be old and wise. And yeah, mysterious. That, always mysterious. Oh, they're wizards. We must be mysterious. Yeah. Let's talk in riddles. Very, very true. I've seen that time it's and like, time again. It's all modeled on Gandalf is the thing. Basically, and, I, and I've fallen right into it. Well, and with my wizards, I've I've not gone the whole old. Well, I mean, I've gone old that I haven't done the mysterious thing quite so much, but I've very much done the the old and wizened. But I've always done my warlocks or my not my warlocks, my wizards as elves. And I actually had an elf at one time whose name was Silvor Leaf. <laughs> <laughs> And he spammed Fireball. Of course. And magic, magic Missile. missile. I and cast Magic Missile. He, he never never had anything that could even be vaguely considered a support spell ready. Because every support spell ready is was something that I couldn't use for an offensive spell slot. And oh, God, it was so terrible. I feel bad. I feel bad thinking about that character at this point. <laughs> here's, an, here's another one that I, I fall into a lot is when I roll a RPG healer, they're always extremely pious. Like, so, because again, and based off the guidance in the books and stuff, so I was like, well, they, you know, generally the healers get their get their power from some particular god that they're choosing to worship. So, and like in the AD and D era stuff, it steers you that way. But I've, as I think about it, it's always like, yeah, but I don't just have them get, I've never just had them get their power that way. It's all, oh, they're completely devout. It's all about their God. It's all very, very fanatic zealot style, not necessarily like crazy conversion people, but 
just sort of this ever present. Oh, yes, I'm I'm playing. Oh, I'm a healer, so I'm the religious one. I'm going to embrace you with the power of my Lord and Savior and and fix everything. You know, it would be really interesting for me to ever just totally buck that and play one and be like, I'm I'm dying. I need the healer. Can you pray for me? There is no God. Here's a band aid. <laughs> Deal with it or face oblivion. I've never done it. I've always, I've always been dutifully devout, good or evil. And I've usually done good healers as well. I don't think I've ever actually seriously role played in any length of time an evil healer. That could be interesting too, though. Cthulhu yeah, requires sacrifice. I, I actually watched a Koibu does a series that's called Dicing with Death. And he did uh, where they do, uh, it's him and a friend of his, and they do one-player campaigns. So one of them DMs, and the other is the only player involved in the campaign. Which is something I've thought about trying, because it seems pretty awesome. But uh, he did one where uh, the character he was playing was an evil cleric. And his everything he did was based around just subverting the big good... And, you know, managing to burn down a holy church and doing stuff like that while basically trying to cause as much havoc and terribleness without getting caught and then walking away type stuff. Hmm. Because he wasn't, his goal, he was, his goals weren't, he, I mean, he was one guy, his goal wasn't to destroy everything or this or that. He was just trying to make the ground fertile for the, for, you know, uh, the great Lord to take over later. Right, right. Thing. By sowing chaos. Right, so uh, it was it was a really interesting uh, run. I think it was one of the it was one of the early dicing with deaths that he did that the videos for. But I've always done paladin. My paladins is super zealots when I do a paladin. I mean, they're very. We won't take money for this. We won't. No, no. We we don't need reward type. I'm, to the point where I've realized it's like, wow, I was actually a really kind of annoying player when I played a paladin. And that's something I actively have tried to avoid doing with my paladin that I got at CantCon and that I'm currently building uh, a backstory for. And I've built that into his backstory where he's a, he's kind of a zealot, but it's not, you know, he's not like the suit, like a super zealot, super extremist type thing, but it's a, matter where uh, he had a personality trait that was on the pre-generated sheet that he likes to quote some ancient hero a lot. So I, you know, basically build up. It's like there was this old thing where there's an old hero who was, you know, massively good and well-known and this and that. And he wants to be that guy, but he's not super pious. He's just... He, he, his whole thing and his every the way he was raised and everything is based around him being him trying to be that guy without actually having the whole super faith pious ability. All he cares about is like he likes to go around and bless like uh, because his, uh, his 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 god is you know the god of smiths and this and that. So his big thing is you know blessing smithies because that's his job because that's what his god does. But other than that, he doesn't really go. He's not a true believer. He he's all about the doing the show and doing the 
going through the forms and what's required because it's what's required, but it's not necessarily that important to him. He does it because it's what it's supposed to do. And he just wants to be awesome like that guy. The only other, because I normally end up with wizards or, or healers, cleric types when I've done RPGs. The only other one that I can think of is I have never rolled a fighter, put one together where the fighter was intelligent. When we go back to camp, the fighter always has to drink or train with his weapon or whatever. I never have him go, oh, yeah, I'm, let's go back to camp. I want to read a book. Nope. Now, now, see, I've, I've done smart fighters. I've never done smart fighters, but I've done smart fighters. But uh, my thing is um, Rangers. Also, oh. I like to play Rangers a lot because I mean, come on, who, who doesn't want to be Aragorn? Seriously. Strider. Running through the woods, living off the land, nothing but your bow and a sword, and maybe depending upon how you play it, maybe you've got you know a wolf that hangs out with you or something. That like pure freaking nature loving uh, creature that is just whatever you know. You shoot a quarter out of the air with your bow, blindfolded behind the back type stuff. Mm-hmm. I've played a lot of those. Uh, Though I, I still like to play that character type, but I tend to move away from. I've moved away from the whole nature loving, protecting nature type thing, and into something that's more along the lines of like a well trained military scout. That that whole, and I think it has to do with a lot of the fantasy books I read young when I was younger. You know, I mean, there was a, of course, Aragorn and and so many others over the years that have been where the one guy type loves nature, lives off the land thing. That's just set itself up that whenever I play and I design somebody like that, that's who it tends to be. Okay. Well, did you have any others? Cause we've run dry of my tropes. <laughs> uh, there's, a, there, there's a couple others, uh, nothing huge and major. I find that I've run into a whole bunch of times, uh, kind of like with you with the uh, wizard where you always go for the old and wizened and, and mysterious I kind of like with the whole sorcerer which is just a wizard for people who are too lazy to do the math and figure out their spell slots and figure out what they're going to want to remember today so they just they, they, they just have the ability to throw whatever spells they want they just have less spells they can do it with than a wizard so they're not as big of a uh, toolbox. I always tend to play those guys as very flighty, like very much of a ooh shiny, shiny, shiny. So, because do you do them absent-mindedly? Sometimes uh, I, I've done several that were absent-minded, or if they weren't absent-minded, they were just very they were very easy to get distracted type character where they'd start following something that was interesting and then they'd find something else interesting and they'd kind of just turn and go that way. And that's why they were never the way that why, you know, not can't be a wizard because that requires practice and learning this and that. And I just, nah, I just, you know, it's just stuff. It's magic. I just kind of do it. I've done that a bunch of times, but I found that, uh, the big things I've seen over the time is like the normal stuff you see, like in every movie and every book, the, the, the stuff that I found that gets out there and a lot of people see, I mean, a lot of people do. And I've never, I've never, can I say that honestly? Let me think. Yeah, I have never in an RPG played a thief. I was just now thinking of thieves because I wanted to say this one just popped into my head from a gameplay perspective. 
And I, I got a, a full respect to the people who play thieves, but I cannot think of a time where I have been with someone where they were playing a thief and they didn't kill 15 minutes of game time because they tried to steal everything and were constantly roll checking against the GM. Yeah. That I, hate, I hate that. I hate that it. It drives me nuts. And I've seen that a lot. I've seen that in in con games. I've seen that in games I've been involved with. And I think that type of thing is one of the reasons I've never actually played a thief is because I don't... None of that stuff seems that interesting to me. I'd prefer... I like playing the big dumb meat shields and... Or like the... Uh, or magic eyes or ranger type stuff is where I tend to aim for. And the whole thief... Oh, I want to pickpocket everybody here. Or even worse, even worse, I recall playing a time where uh, our thief didn't really know any thief stuff. He actually he actually broke the trope. He broke the trope because he was a, with a thief character because it's what made it best. But he was designed his thief character to be more of a uh, kind of an intrigue spy type guy. He was kind of that kind. He was. It was much more about the interaction and charisma and uh, like secrets than stealing actual stuff, which meant he was a really awesome character to play with, and he was a lot of fun in social stuff. And then we found out that he had absolutely no ability to do anything with like traps or anything. <laughs> and we got we got stuck somewhere where there were a lot of traps. And we decided going with the best way to break the traps was with my my big old dumb barbarian just walked forward and then got healed and then walked forward and then got healed. That's how we handle traps. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> so, but I think that's everything I've got. Then that's everything the podcast has for this episode. A nice, normal-sized, full episode. So, very convenient. Wonderful. It's almost like it was planned. I know. Amazing. Yo, when I was listening to that episode of Broken Token, uh, they were talking about how critical they rely upon OneNote, which I thought was interesting because other than us, thanks to your thoughts when we first started up, it's the first time I've known another podcast I've listened to that admitted that they jointly used OneNote to keep track of everything they wanted to talk about. Yeah, I, I like OneNote for it. That may, it. It tends to make things very easy. Yes, very, very much. If you would like to make things, dear listeners, easy for us, you can give us a rating and review over at iTunes. We really appreciate it. It helps with the search algorithm so people actually find this podcast because, as we've noted, none of our topics are actually in the name other than gamers. And if you want to interact with us, you can email us, eclecticgamerspodcast at gmail.com. You can also engage with us on Facebook, facebook.com slash eclectic gamers podcast. That's probably the better of those two methods to reach out to us. Um, we are, I believe, out there on Twitter and Instagram. Aren't we, we are Tony? on Twitter and Instagram at both places. We are eclectic underscore gamers. Excellent. And we should be back in a couple of weeks with all new content. But until then, I will say I am Dennis. And I'm Tony. And hopefully I'll play some games or something to have a better tabletop section next time. See y'all. Bye. <laughs>